Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse number 19. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have authorization for entrance into the most holy place by means of the blood of Jesus, an entrance which he has inaugurated for us, a way new and living through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us keep drawing near with true hearts in full fullness of faith, having allowed our hearts to be sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies to be washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope firm, For the one who has promised is faithful. And let us pay attention to each other for the provoking of love and good works. We will accomplish this not by continuing to abandon the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but by continually exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews has just finished a very long exposition, a long teaching on the topic of what it means that Jesus Christ is your high priest. He was hesitant to give them this teaching because he didn't think they could handle it. Because if you would read the comments in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Hebrews, he figured they had become lethargic that they had become dull of hearing, that they had been allowing themselves to drift away with time. Time was dulling their senses. They have lost focus. They had lost what the goal, what the end of the journey is. They had just kind of lost all that. They were drifting. And the writer wants to correct this because he's saying to these people, if you allow yourselves to drift... What will happen is you will be like a boat that's just going to go with the tide and you're never going to reach the port to which you're supposed to be going. Now that would be a horrible thing as Christians just to float and realize at the end of our lives when we stand before the judgment of God that we have missed it. That we didn't arrive where we were supposed to be going. I don't want that to happen to me. How about yourself? There is a goal There is an end of the story. There is a destination to which we are all to be headed. The Hebrews here were missing the point. They were drifting. And to correct that, he wanted to give them some teaching about the high priesthood of Christ, which you can find in chapters 8, 7, 8, 9, and 10. But he didn't think they were able to handle the teaching and so he gives them a, an exhortation before he gives this teaching to waken them up. You should be able to understand this stuff. You're no longer new Christians. You should be able to develop into this understanding and into this knowledge. And he says, but I've got to feed you with milk. I can't give you strong meat. And yet he turns around he's going to give them the strong meat anyway. Because they need the teaching for them to develop. When he's finished all the teaching, 
then he says what he just said here. Now knowing what you know, it's time to press in. It's time to press forward. It is time not to sit back. It is time not to be hesitant. But look what Christ has done. Now let's keep moving. Now if you go to chapter 4 of Hebrews and read verses 14 to 16, you discover there that he also gives them an exhortation the same way. Before he explains about the high priesthood of Christ, he will also exhort them to be pushing themselves to draw near. In chapter 4, starting in 14, it says, Therefore, because we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, when he says this in chapter 4, they haven't heard the extensive teaching about what it means that Christ is your high priest. And he's only been able to give them little bits and pieces in small sections of doctrine and exhortation. Then he gives them this great teaching, and then he gives them what we just read in chapter 10, 19 to 25. After they got the solid food, this is how you are now to respond to the knowledge that I have just uh, given you. Chapter 4 and chapter 10 go together. One introduces the teaching and one concludes the teaching. But both of them are saying we need to press in. We need to draw nigh to Christ. So let's go back to chapter 10 and let's start looking at verse number 19. Chapter 10, verse number 19, where it says, Having therefore, brothers and sisters, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In other words, in light of everything that you have heard me say from chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and the beginning of chapter 10, in the light of everything that has been taught you that Christ is your high priest, the response is you and I are to come with boldness into the very presence of God. Christ as your high priest is your resource for going on. He is your motivation for going on. There are benefits, 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 benefits which you can read about in chapters 5 through 10, of why we need to be drawing nigh to Christ. We'll look at those benefits in just a minute. But he's addressing the brothers and the sisters. He's addressing the fact that Christ himself has become one of us. Back in chapter 2, it says that Christ was made like unto his brothers. He assumed our humanity in order to include us in his own inheritance. Now that's quite a thought. That the eternal Son of God assumed my humanity so that he may include me in his inheritance. Isn't that amazing? He assumed your humanity 
that you may have his inheritance with him. That is a marvelous, marvelous thought. So you and I have a goal. Anybody here want to miss the inheritance? Anybody? If we drift, we will miss. That's the warnings over and over and over out of Hebrews. If we allow ourselves to get dull and allow ourselves to drift, we may end up off target at the end of the story. And we don't want that. What a thought that it is that Christ as the eternal Son of God has an inheritance and he has no intention of, of taking that inheritance without sharing it with you and without sharing it with me. What a shame it would be just through lethargicness or dullness or just over time we get slow at this kind of thing. What a shame to lose out on the inheritance. What a shame. We need to draw near and we need to press in. We are his brothers and we are his sisters. We are of the household of God. It says that we are to have boldness. Not everybody is bold by nature. But you know what? There are times when you've got to develop boldness. You've got to develop a sense of aggressiveness. The magnitude of what he is saying here is emphasized. You and I have authorization to enter into the very presence of God. Does that excite anybody? Does that excite anybody? You have authorization to enter into the very presence of God. That is a privilege that Abraham did not have in his lifetime. That is a privilege that Solomon and David and Elijah and Elisha and all the prophets, they did not have that privilege because they lived before the coming of Christ. They lived by faith, but they didn't have the privilege that you and I have. We have authorization to enter in to the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Christ, all-sufficient sacrifice, has given you and me the authorization to enter where no Old Testament saint ever went. Are you catching that? Is the, the truth of that hitting you? Hello? (laughs) Is that hitting you? Do we understand the privilege that is ours? And do you understand what a disaster it is if we don't respond to the privilege? What a privilege is ours. We have confidence because of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. You and I are empowered to enter into God's presence. It's a new way. It is a living way. The fact is, those who lived in the Old Testament had never seen the way to God. Never happened to them. Because in that Old Testament tabernacle, those priests never got beyond the veil. There was an impregnable veil a wall a partition between the people and the presence of God and nobody ever got beyond the veil 
Think about that. Century after century after century of Old Testament worship, nobody got beyond the veil. But you and me have authority to enter. Amen. You and me have authority to enter. The way is now fully open to the people of God. That means this, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is after. There's no need for you to slink into the presence of God. There's no need to come with bashfulness. No need to come with shyness. No need to come with any sense of embarrassment. The fact is, due to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, He has perfected you and He has perfected me. We have been made holy because of His blood. The veil is gone. The way is open. What an honor and what a privilege. And how silly it is for us not to enter. How silly it is for us to be shy, to be bashful, to be embarrassed, to say, I don't think I should go in, or who am I? The price that Christ has paid to give you the privilege that no Old Testament saint ever had is tremendous. What an honor and what a privilege belong to you and me. So it's not right to sit back with hesitancy. It's not right to be overtaken with unbelief. It's not right to be overtaken with fear. Press in is what the writer of Hebrews is going to say. This right of entrance into the very presence of God was procured only by the means of the cleansing blood of Jesus. The price that Christ paid, you know, we often think his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood was the price that was paid. That's true, but we have to understand when the writer of Hebrews says, by the blood of Jesus, he's meaning more than his just physical death upon a cross. He means more than that. Because we often say we're saved by the death of Jesus, but sometimes I wonder if we understand what it means that we're saved by the life of Jesus. Saved by His life. Now what I mean by that is that Jesus, in order to be that sacrifice for our sin, had to live His entire life in complete obedience for all 33 and a half years that he lived, he had to live his life in complete obedience under every temptation of sin possible known to man. And he experienced temptation like you and I haven't got a clue of what temptation is because when the devil wanted me to sin, all he had to do was dangle a carrot in front of me and I took it. So that didn't take much. But he couldn't do anything to get Jesus to sin. And Jesus remained faithful to the will of God, obedient to the faith 
to the will of God in the face of an absolute hostile world that put him on the cross and if obedience to God meant he went to death on a cross, he remained obedient to God. It was that sinless life that he lived for all those years in the face of every temptation, in every trial, his victory in his life, that's what it is that qualified him to make the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. And that's what gave his blood the power to cleanse, is because he himself was an innocent man proven in the fires of temptation. You're saved by his life, not just by his death. Because his life was perfectly obedient, that's what gave power in his death to atone for our sins. Are we understanding a bit of the price that Christ paid to open the veil for you and for me? Is that cluing in a little bit of what he endured to make a way for you and for me. Considering that, I repeat myself, what a shame we don't take advantage of it and we don't develop and we don't press on and we don't grow. Everything that you and I need to arrive at our destination is provided by the sacrifice of Christ, by His present intercessory ministry for you and me, Everything is provided to get you and I to glory, to get you and I to the destiny. What a shame that God has gone through all that trouble to provide for all of that, and we can't be bothered to press in. Are we following the heart of the pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews? This is his heart that he is saying. The blood of Jesus is a shorthand way of him saying his sinless perfectly obedient life which was then offered freely by himself to the cross that is how the right of entrance was given to you and to me powerful thought isn't it so verse verse 19 it says you and I have authority authorization because Jesus did this you and I have the authorization now to enter where no Old Testament saint was ever allowed to go. Wow. Powerful stuff, isn't it? Verse number 20, it says, By a new and a living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This ability to enter into the very presence of God, the pastor here in the book of Hebrews calls it a new and a living way. Now, just as Moses in the Old Testament inaugurated that earthly tent of worship with animal blood, so Christ has inaugurated the way of entrance into the very presence of God with his own blood. Old King James Bible says he consecrated it for us. A better word for modern English would be he has inaugurated it for us. He has opened up something to us, something that has never been opened before. This is totally new. Amen. 
This is totally new. It had never been opened before. Christ has inaugurated the ability for you and I to go into the very presence of God itself. Totally new. Some versions of the Bible use the word consecrate. When it says consecrate, it means that you and I must never forget the price that was paid to give us this privilege. What a price that was paid to give you and I this privilege. It says it's a new and a living way. When it says it's new, we need to hear this fact that it did not exist before. Can you just imagine? Elijah, as powerful as he was, didn't have that privilege. King David, as powerful as he was, didn't have that privilege. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? It's a new. It's totally, totally new. And it has a fresh character. We don't go into that tent and meet that same old barrier, but a new entrance that provides the people of God with access into His presence. When it says it's a living way, what it means is this, that it is forever fresh. It never grows old. It'll never grow stale. It'll never be antiquated. And it will never go out of date. Aren't you glad for that? Never go out of date. It's the living way because it leads to life in the presence of the living God. And what has been opened to you and I is not a dead end. Isn't that a good thing? You hate to end your life at dead end, wouldn't you? Nobody wants to end your life on a dead end. But this is a living way, life with the living God. The journey between now and the end of the story is full of life. It's not that just we have to merely endure, but a way of access has provided and has been guaranteed by the living God. Christ is alive. Amen. He has risen from the dead. He intercedes at the right hand of the Father for you and me. He is well and He is alive. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 7 would teach this, that He has an indestructible life. He can't die. Now that's good news because that means the one who represents me, the one who represents you, is never going to die. He's always there. An indestructible life. This is a living way. He remains forever, Hebrews says, with an unchangeable priesthood. The Word of God in chapter 4 is quick, living, it's alive, and it is powerful. We also have to understand that Old Testament generation that the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 3 and 4, that wilderness generation... They did not listen to the Word of God. And when God spoke to them in a living way, and they responded in disbelief, then the fact is, they perished in the wilderness, and they never made their destiny. And the writer Hebrews is telling us that God has spoken, God has spoken, God has spoken. God is speaking, God is speaking, God is speaking. God has provided a way for us. We dare not respond. 
with hesitancy. We dare not respond with dullness or lack of faith because the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to experience the same fate of that wilderness generation of never making it. You and I have a new and a living way. Verse number uh, 20, it says that he has consecrated this for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That veil used to be a barrier to the presence of God. Between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was that curtain. It was a veil. Nobody could get through it. But through his obedient sacrifice, through living in complete obedience for his whole life, he has transformed that veil from a barrier, and now it is the entryway. It's the door instead of a barrier. Thank God for his sacrifice. Now, verse number 21, he goes on to say this. Since all this is true, and having a high priest, or a great priest, over the house of God. He is purposely using irony here. Irony, because that is an understatement of understatements. Having a great high priest. The term great, to describe Jesus, is hardly adequate to describe the magnitude of everything he has said in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 about Christ, our high priest. He has provided for us what's called such a great salvation for opening up that veil for you and I as members of his household, as his brothers and now as his sisters, to enter into this divine presence. What has been said about this great high priest? Who is it that has gone there ahead of us? Who is it that has opened up that way? And who is it that has already arrived? And who is it that is there encouraging us to go on? Who is it that is there providing everything that we need to carry on to the end of the journey? Let me tell you who he is. When he says this great high priest, this is an understatement that he's making. Let me tell you who he has described who has done this for us. He is the eternal Son of God. Amen. He is the eternal Son of God. And as the eternal Son of God, according to chapter 1, by whom he also made the worlds, he's the creator of this universe, he is the heir of all things, God the Father designed all of this as a gift to his Son, But he never intended to inherit this without you and without me. Now listen to that very carefully. God the Father has given him all creation as his inheritance, but he does not wish to inherit it without you and without me. Who is this? So in order to inherit with you and with me, to include you and I in on this, the eternal Son of God entered into a sinful world, became the incarnate Son, which means He took on humanity, which means He suffered every trial possible in this world, been through every test, every temptation, 
been through it all for your sake and my sake to understand us, to experience. So when I say I'm lonely, Jesus can say, I know what you mean. When I'm saying I'm hurting, he could say, I know what you mean. I feel betrayed, he could say, I know what you mean. I'm in pain, he could say, I know what you mean. He had lived his entire life to identify with us to the fullest potential possible. And he went through every trial, but in order to take you and I to the inheritance, he had to never sin once in all of that. And he lived an obedient perfectly sinless life. Why? So that He can take you to His inheritance. Are we understanding this? Who is this great high priest? So that He could take you and me to be joint heirs together with Him in His inheritance. And living this perfectly obedient life, Nobody took his life from him. He offered it and he gave it to himself. And because it was perfectly obedient, that sacrifice was accepted on your behalf and on my behalf. The shedding of his blood after a perfectly sinless life took the veil away and gives you and I the right of access into the very presence of God itself. This is our high priest. After he died, God raised him from the dead, and the eternal Son, who became the incarnate Son, became the exalted Son. And now he is sitting on the right hand of the Father, given all authority, all power in heaven and on earth. He is sovereign. He is control. It's all for him. He is exalted, but he doesn't just go back to heaven as the eternal son. He goes back into heaven as a human, as a man, as he takes that humanity with him. Why? So that you and I, with our humanity, are allowed into his presence. He is the exalted Son, and He rules and He reigns over the entire creation, all the entire universe, in favor of you and me. This is our High Priest. Amazing, isn't it? What else? Who is this great High Priest? He's the one that gave Himself to accomplish the will of God. Because the old covenant under Moses could not perfect anything. That old covenant under Moses could not qualify anybody for entrance into God's presence. The repetition of sacrifices, the repetition of giving up bulls and goats day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the repeated sacrifices over and over and over could not accomplish the will of God. So Jesus said in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, I have come to do your will. A body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will. Jesus has come to see the will of God accomplished. Powerful stuff. He gave his life, perfectly obedient life, as a free will offering to the cross. Listen, it is fully sufficient for your sin. It is a sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. This is our 
high priest. Because of his perfect obedience, God rewarded him and exalted him to the highest place, sitting on the right hand of majesty. Now he's sitting there waiting for the end of the story. The end of the story, according to Psalm 110, is when his enemies will become his footstool. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10 that he is eagerly waiting for the end of the story. Um, i ask a question. Jesus is more interested in the second coming than we are. Did you catch that? He is more interested in his appearing than you and I are. Because Jesus knows that when he comes that second time, when the appearing takes place, it's the end of the story. He knows that all his enemies become his footstool. It is the revelation of glory that takes place. And you and I are part of that story. He is eagerly anticipating that day. Think about that. Because, you know, we don't even think about the second coming, but Christ is up there in heaven eagerly anticipating that day to come. If he's anticipating it, don't you think you and I should be? Is that not right? Should not you and I be anticipating that day? He ministers on our behalf with an indestructible life. His, he never dies, so his ministry never ceases. He is in the presence of heaven itself. He is before the very face of God. He is sitting down on the right hand, which means the atonement is finished. It's forever accomplished. There's nothing further to do for the forgiveness of your sins. It means that the end of the journey has been secured for us. It means that He has provided for the journey that is secure for us. He's the pioneer. He's already reached the goal. And now He's bringing you and I over. Wow. If that is everything that Christ does because he's our high priest, how silly of you and me to sit back. Isn't that true? Let us draw near. He is the heir of all things. He's bringing you and I, many sons, to glory. As I said before, he has no intention of heriting without us. What a shame. All this provision has been made for us. And what a shame. We don't push in with aggressiveness. What a shame. We let ourselves drift. When all of this has been provided. Verse number 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. If everything that has just been said is true, how are you and I supposed to respond to this? Because the readers of this sermon, this exhortation, the readers of this epistle, they were scared for their lives. They were experiencing persecution. They were having a hard time. They were living in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world that gave them a pile of trouble. They're getting weary of the whole race. They're getting tired. They were losing focus. They had become dull in their prayer life and dull in their Bible study. They kind of just drifting along in life. 
with just casual recognition of the things of the Lord done. Some of them are going to face martyrdom. They're ready, they're, they're, they're being called upon to sacrifice their lives when you get to chapter 12. Knowing that kind of pressure is out there, he says that's no excuse. What an amazing thing. You're about to be martyred, but that's no excuse not to show up for church. What a thought that is. Because don't you know who your high priest is? Don't you know he's provided for grace for every situation? Don't you know he's taken the fear out of death? Don't you know he has overcome all of these things? So let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. When it says we are to draw near, that means you as an individual, and in the context that we're reading here, it also means us as a group of people together. Community worship. It's in, in the original language, this is the continuous tense. Let us draw near and keep drawing near and keep drawing near and keep drawing near. We're to keep, keep, keep drawing near. In other words, he says it needs to be your regular habit to constantly avail yourself of the presence of God. And we're to keep going in and keep going in and keep going in until Jesus comes. Amen. Keep pressing in. That's how we're going to gain strength for the journey. That's how we're going to get from where we are to the end of the story. And to get there, you have to keep pressing in. If you don't keep pressing in, you drift and you miss the target. That's what he's saying here. So keep drawing in, keep drawing in, and keep drawing in. You have to draw near, it says, with a true heart. And you have to draw in in what's called the fullness of faith. When he says you have to come with a true heart, he's talking about the opposite of an evil heart. He has told us in chapter 3 what that evil heart is. That generation that came out of Egypt under Moses never made it into their destiny, never made it to the promised land. They perished in the wilderness. And the reason they perished in the wilderness is because they had an evil heart. If you read Hebrews chapter 3, it defines for you what that is. It means it's a heart of unbelief. It means it is a heart that chooses to disobey God rather than to heed what He is saying. It's a heart that chooses to disobey God rather than listen to what He is saying. To have a true heart doesn't mean just a heart that is sincere, but it means a heart that is ready to obey Him. A true heart, according to Hebrews 8, is a new heart where God, by His Spirit, has written His laws upon your heart and empowers you for obedience. Empowers you to do the will of God. That's what a true heart is. And we have to be pressing in with a heart that's ready to obey God. That's what is meant by a true heart. Ready to obey God. It had, we have to come in the fullness of faith. Well, chapter 11 is going to explain to us what faith is. But let me just put it in these words. It means to live in the robust confidence that God's promise for your future is sure 
and the provision given to you to get from here to your future is just as sure. Amen. That the end of the story is sure and the power of God to get you from where you are to the end of the story is just as sure. God has provided for your end and provided everything for you to get you to that end. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying there is no reason for failure. None whatsoever. Chapter 11 is going to explain the fullness of faith. How do you and I get this true heart and how do we get this fullness of faith? It goes on to say here in verse number 22 that our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. What does that mean? It means God has done something to change your heart. He has purified your heart. He enables you to enter into the presence of God. When he talks about sprinkling, he's using the Old Testament language where they used to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and sprinkle the blood you know, on the temple and so forth. And he says our hearts have been sprinkled, cleansed. Thank God for it. Amen? Are you glad for a changed heart? Are you glad for a forgiven heart? Are you glad your conscience has been cleansed? Are you glad He's been able to reform your soul and your heart through the blood of Jesus? What a wonderful truth that is. A powerful, powerful truth. If you go to Ezekiel 36, he uses language from Ezekiel 36 to describe this. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Isn't that good news? You will be clean. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit I will put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments to do them. Powerful. He sprinkled our hearts. Cleansed them. Put His Spirit in us. Put His Word, His laws inside our hearts to empower us for the journey. Isn't that good news? This is good, good, good news. When he goes on in chapter 10, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, When he says our bodies washed with pure water, he's referring to a practice of the Old Testament priests. Before they could go into that temple, before the Day of Atonement, he could go in and make that sacrifice. He had to completely bathe himself. He had to wash himself totally, his whole body, with water. Now what the writer of Hebrews is doing is taking this, is that this washing your body with water is a representative of the transformation of your heart that reveals itself in your obedience. In other words, what's true in your heart, I can see outwardly. Your outward obedience, what I can see, the body part of you, is as cleansed as your heart is. So when he says, having your bodies washed with pure water, he's talking about the transformation of your life that is visible to other people because of what's happened inside your heart. We're cleansed. And people can see that you're cleansed by your actions. 
So let's go forward in boldness, knowing that our heart has been cleansed, and that the laws of God are written in our hearts, and we are obediently living to the Word of God, then with such confidence, keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. You and I don't just merely have forgiven hearts. We have hearts that have become free from dead works, and we can serve the living God. Amen? Verse number 23 goes on to say, how are we to respond to this work that Christ has done for us? Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering. This is encouragement. Persevere, persevere, persevere. How many know that life is full of challenges? Anybody figured that out yet? (laughs) Anybody figured out that life can throw all sorts of things at you? And we can get discouraged. Don't let the things of life stop you from pressing into the presence of God. Don't let them stop you. Don't let discouragement, don't let a disappointment, don't let any of that discourage you from persevering in the presence of God. What a shame to miss your destiny because you got disappointed about something in life. What a shame to miss your destiny because you got disappointed about something in life. Keep persevering. Hold fast the profession of your hope. Hold fast that reward in front of you. Because it's going to take perseverance for you and I to keep going because there's plenty in life to challenge us. Hey, we have a high priest that's going to give us everything we need to meet the challenges of life. Are you excited about that? Amen. You have a high priest that's going to give you everything you need to overcome the challenges of life. So keep pressing forward. Keep persevering. That's how you're going to get to the end of the story, is by perseverance. We need to hold fast the confession of our hope. The way we do that is to realize what He has provided for us. We have to keep focus on the reward. Have I told you what the reward is yet? Have I? The end of the story is what? The end of the story is glory. Right from the beginning of creation, after six days of creation, What did God do on the seventh day? He rested. And it is His intention to get all of His people into that rest. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 is all about. When we get to the end of the story, we enter into God's rest. That rest is still ahead of us. Have I told you about an eternal city whose builder and maker is God? Have you heard that one? Have you heard about the better heavenly homeland? Have you heard about the resurrection of the body? Have you heard about the unshakable kingdom that Christ brings with him when he appears? Have you heard about being a joint heir together with Christ? Keep focused on the end of the story. Don't allow yourself to drift. Don't allow yourself to become dull or lethargic. 
Don't let opposition wear you down. Don't let disappointments in life take the life out of your soul. Don't let time dull your senses. The writer Hebrews is saying, focus on the end of the story. You see, we need to know what the end of the story is. It's not just dying and going to heaven. The end of the story is the appearing of Christ. The end of the story is the revelation of the Son of God at His appearing. Dying and going to heaven is just part of the journey, but it's not the end of the journey. Let's keep focused on what the end of the story is. The reason, according to 20, verse 23, why we can hold fast without wavering is because the person who gave you the promise is faithful. How faithful is God? You know how faithful He is? All the way through the Old Testament, when He dealt with Abraham, He confirmed His promise with an oath. Can you imagine that God swears an oath to you and me? Do you understand what it means when anybody swears an oath? If you are in a court of justice and you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and if you perjure yourself after you've given an oath, what happens to you? I mean, if you break the oath, you are allowing the whole criminal court to come down on your neck. You are subjecting yourself to their authority and to their penalty. Do you understand what it means that in order to prove to himself that he's faithful to you, that he has taken an oath? Do you understand what that means? That God has sworn an oath to you and to me. There is no possibility of God not keeping his word. Because if God didn't keep his word, the whole universe would cease to exist. I noticed the sun came up this morning. He's still keeping his word. That is the strength. And the fact is, to prove to you that he keeps his word, that he wants you at the end of the story, that he will provide for your every need to get you to the end of the story, he established his son to be your high priest with an oath. The Lord swore to his son... You are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That God's setting of Christ in His place as your high priest to open the veil and to give you the strength for the journey, He has been put in there with an oath. Are we catching the significance of that? The power of that statement is something incredible. He is faithful. And since that's the commitment that God has given to you and me, keep pushing. Keep pressing. Keep persevering. What a guarantee that you and I have been given. Verse number 24 says the other thing that we should do in response to all of this teaching The other response is, let's consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. How many thought provoking one another was a bad thing? It's a negative word. It's a bit of irony here. He says, we need to provoke. Listen to something that he's going to say here. You're on a journey. You're not going to make the journey all by yourself. 
is going to deal in verse 25 with people who isolate themselves from relationships in the body of Christ. You're not going to make it on your own. You need one another relationships in the body of Christ. You and I are to encourage one another with mutual concern. It takes one another relationships for us to deal with perseverance in a world that's hostile to us. We need one another's encouragement. We need to create and we need to sustain the sense of community one with another. The word provoke is used intentionally and he uses it with irony. Just as some people will provoke others to anger, God's people should be provoking each other to love and to good works. When it says, I need to provoke you to love, it's not referring to just some sort of mere sentimentality, but it means a heart of love that expresses itself in good works. You need to demonstrate your love in good works. I need to provoke you to produce the good works. Are you hearing that? You need to provoke me to produce the good works, to demonstrate the love in our hearts. Good works. I have been empowered because of the change in my heart to do good works. I have been delivered from dead works. And we have the ability to produce the good works. That means we do things that bring benefit to other people, that are pleasing to other people, and these things are acceptable in the eyes of God. In chapter 13, he tells you what some of those good works are. Brotherly love, hospitality, concern for the suffering, sexual purity, generosity, These are all the things that we need to be exhorting one another in the face of a hostile world. We need to say, you keep being generous. You keep yourself sexually pure. Be hospitable to each other. Love one another. Show concern for the suffering people of this world. We are to provoke each other to do those kinds of things. How do we do this? Well, verse number 25 will tell us, and this is our last verse, We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. What the writer Hebrews was saying, don't allow yourself to drift by abandoning the necessity of meeting together as a corporate people of God. Don't abandon the meetings where Christians gather together for worship and for fellowship. The writer Hebrews is saying is if you isolate yourself from daily relationships one with another, the people of God, he's saying you will most likely shipwreck because you've drifted off course. We don't want to do that. He says you've got to exhort one another continuously. Don't absent yourself from God's people. Because if you absent yourself from God's people, you can't be provoking one another to love and to good works. Other people are not receiving the encouragement that only you can give if you're not there. Why were the people in Hebrews abandoning themselves? Probably because of fear. Probably time has just dulled their hearts. They were neglecting the scriptures. They had just become sluggish. 
or they just felt the pressure from an unbelieving society and they were just being hesitant. But the writer is saying, don't give in to that. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Come together with God's people. Identify with God's people. Edify one another continuously. This is what we need to do for us to make the journey. The awful statement that the writer Hebrews is going to make is this. Failure to do this probably will result in failure to meet the destiny that God has provided for. Wouldn't that be a shame? That Christ has provided all this for us and we missed it because we drifted. Keep focused. Keep focused. The day is coming. The end of verse number 25 So much more as you see the day coming. That day is the appearing of Christ. There's no need to miss when God has provided for so much. Therefore, in verse 22, we're to draw near in faith. In verse 23, we're to hold fast to profession of our hope. In verse 24, we're to provoke one another to love. There are the themes of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. What a high priest we have. What a high priest we have. What provision has been given to us. What security has been granted to us. Let us keep pressing and keep pressing and keep pressing because of our high priest.